racingracing.com.au On Racing HQ, Monday's experts, studying the form of racing's characters. Yeah, really uh, looking forward to today's Monday's experts uh, and uh, looking forward to chatting very shortly with the voice of Sydney Racing, Darren Flindell. Now, we'd all know Darren from our, uh, when we hear him, not only on Sky Sports Radio, across New South Wales, but also in our uh, previews. Uh, But there's a good story behind uh, Darren, and I'm very keen to chat with him about that story, as we have a lot of Sky Racing experts that join us on Sky Sports Radio. We hear them for these brief periods, giving tips and information, but there's so much more to their name. Before we get into Darren, I'm, and I know he's on the line and he'll be hearing this, and it's one of these things that I never think he'll ever get tired of reliving this moment. Let's go back to one of his most famous calls and it'll be, that will be etched in history forever. And Wings completes the lineup. The red light is on and the crowd are ready to send her off and the gates open. They're off in the Queen Elizabeth. Massive roar to the crowd. She's going to settle in last Winks. And Hartnell was first out. Masker times mustering. So is Harlem. Happy clapper handy. He's eminence back last. Kluger runs handy fifth and Winks is moving forward. Bowman wants a better spot. Gets in front of Shalali. He's eminence back second last. Many thought he would lead. Dance, dance, dance is last. Masker time goes to the mile. Has the lead all on his own here from Harlem. And Hartnell's got the box seat third. Two off then to the eight-year-old Happy Clapper. Two further back to Kluger. And there's Winks. One off the fence now. Has he's eminent in a pocket back on the fence. Then came Shillelagh. And Dan's 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 Ten off the leaders last. It's the big roughy. Masker time in front of the 1,200. Out by two lengths on Harlem. Hartner with a great run third. Two off to Happy Clapper. Then came Kluger. Three quarters the outside Winks. Very relaxed in the run. Bowman sitting very quiet. He's eminent back. McDonald just easing back a little bit. It looks as though he's trying to find a way out off the fence. Then came Shalali and Dan's 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 last. No surprises yet. They've got 900 a run. Masker time a length clear from Harlem. Then Hartnell. Happy clapper. Now he starts the run on Winks. He's starting to move forward. Just shading Kluger. Then he's eminent still positioned back on the inside of Shalali and Dan's Dan's Dance coming to the turn. The roughing mask of time. Two lengths clear. Hartnell goes to second giving chase now happy clapper and Winks is rounding them up coming right around the field Kluger takes an inside run she's gone for home already Winks she beats off Hartnell Kluger going up the inside happy clapper can't go on Winks is two lengths clear Kluger sticks on then came Hartnell but she's well clear Winks inside the final 100 metres today we farewell an Australian icon the greatest of all time Winks wins her third I don't know about you, uh, but uh, I dead set just got a bit of a shiver then up the spine listening to that. Uh, an extraordinary day at Royal Ramwick that was, and the dulcet tones you just heard then were Darren Flindell, and he joins me on the line. Morning, Darren. Yeah, good morning, Dave. What a day that was, and uh, just hearing the crowd, the excitement in the crowd from start to finish, that was uh, certainly a day to be treasured. That's one of the beauties of radio, what we just experienced then, because watching that visually... You don't hear the crowd as intently as you just did. And by hearing that crowd, then that audio come through, uh, how was the heart rate on that day for you leading up to that race? Yeah, there was a lot of anxiety, I have to say, uh, because the, of the build-up and all the extra pressure of, 
of doing uh, interviews and different reports uh, on the day and prior and knowing that I had to pretty much nail the call, or in particular the last 100 metres, uh, if the if the result was a foregone conclusion, which it was. So I I sort of had to have a bit of a plan in my mind how I was going to execute uh, the finish. And um, she was such a unique racehorse because you could execute or plan the finishes of races because for her to get beaten was never really an option. Uh, it was just such a unique mm. time in horse racing where you just knew the result before the race was being run. But the intensity of the crowd... During the race, the, the whole race, and then it really built up when they turned for home. And I've never heard a rule like that at Brownwick in the in the six seven years that I've been here. Yeah, it, it was extraordinary. Even to see, I mean, I w- was sitting there on Sky Racing One working with Marto and Tony Brassel, and, and you know, to see those gents who have been around the game longer than me and talk about all these other old horses in in history, and they'd never seen anything like it on that mm. day. When you say that you planned it. Had you, obviously, like any good broadcaster, was that number one in the... Well, obviously, it was number one in terms of what you wanted to say, but how many different versions had you been walking around the Woolies at uh, mm. at Ramwick uh, <laughs> reciting in your head? <laughs> there were a couple of different versions, and I guess the, the one that uh, I could get criticised for is describing her as the greatest of all time, but so many of our colleagues and, and trusted journalists like Max Presnell, for instance. Uh, he was describing her as the greatest, and, and Max has just about seen it all, uh, the likes of Tony Brazel, uh, etc. And I thought, that's sort of the tricky part. Do I go with the greatest of all time or one of the greatest? And I thought, well, I, I'm pretty sure that more than 95% of people would agree with the greatest of all times. Mm. Let's talk about uh, yourself. Uh, we've seen those ads on on Sky Thoroughbred Central. Uh, I want to know before Canterbury, where you know it all began, uh, and I love those ads when they brought them in. But <laughs> let, let's talk about growing up. I mean, were you uh, brought up in a racing family? How did you become the the race caller before starting at Two KY? There was no family background whatsoever. It was probably the influence of the of the mates that I had at school. They had sort of family influences. One of my good mates, Nicky, uh, his family was involved in the trots, and and uh, it it actually all started as a bit of a as a novelty. Mate and I, uh, Tufik, we we were sort of in an English class. We were a lot of this assignment. You had to pair up with somebody and do something unique as an English assignment. So we decided he was a Mad Sharks fan, and me being a Tigers fan, we sat on the hill at Leichhardt Oval and called an entire game into a tape recorder and then submitted the highlights and I think our teacher was very impressed on the score of originality and we got the highest score possible and that was sort of the, the little incentive to uh, to make me think oh, this might be a, a sort of a career path that I could start to to think about and uh, was doing a bit more of that and sending tapes around to the commentators and journalists at the time and the feedback was rather mixed and uh, I thought well Getting into rugby league as a, as a teenager would almost be impossible. So then I started taking the tape recorder to the races. Harold Park Trots used to use the empty broadcast boxes in the back straight back in those days, go out there on Tuesday and, and Friday nights and practice and do a bit of the same at Wentworth Park Greyhounds and then the same at, at Canterbury Races as well. And, and then I just got that feeling at about age 15, this is something I really want to do. And when you had that, 
discussion in the classroom. I think uh, one day everybody was asked what they want to do when they leave school, and I said race caller, and there was this uproarious laughter in the in the room. And that was sort of the moment I decided, right, I'm going to do this. And away you went. And then what was the initial gig? I mean, because we hear a lot about... Uh, you know, uh, especially in those times in media, it was just a matter of keep turning up, turning up, and an opportunity will present itself. So you, mm. you're going to Harold Park, you're going to Wenny Park, you're sending the tapes. Was there a particular moment that you got the green light to come and work for 2KY or someone else at that time? I'd say the, the turning point was I, I ended up signing up to go to the Max Rowley Radio School. And that, that school was sort of designed more for, for DJs and talkback hosts, etc. But it was an opening to, to sort of polish myself up a bit. But Max had outstanding contacts, and he got me the job as the on-course announcer at Harold Park Dogs and then also Wentworth Park Dogs. And when I say announcer, just making general announcements, car ABC 502, you've left your lights on and the dogs are moving out for <laughs> race two. But, and, uh, and lost kid announcements, etc. But that was sort of just the in and then started to meet a few people at the Greyhounds, and ultimately I got the, the gig calling Mossville Greyhounds every Saturday. So that was the track that really opened the door. Okay, so we're at Mossville Greyhounds. Uh, I presume at the time this isn't your only job? No, um, at that stage, first job out of school was the Commonwealth Bank. Uh, that didn't last too long. Uh, then I worked briefly for a customs agency, which was quite good because my task was to walk all around the CBD, going to the different offices, and I was very, very quick on my feet. So I used to get the job done as quick as possible so I could spend more time in the tab during the lunch break. <laughs> and then what was the moment where you got the full-time employment uh, for, for 2KY? How old were you? Uh, around, I think when the full-time employment started, it was age around age 20. Or so I was starting to do a lot of casual work, calling uh, Nowra Greyhounds then and the Trots at Lithgow and and also at Bathurst, and I was actually making quite a good earn, particularly with the mileage money. And then someone at Two KY realised it's probably better we put him on full time. Full time. He won't be so expensive then. <laughs> From the, the transition, and and I sort of have these same chats with. <coughs> Uh, blokes like, uh, you know, you, you Luke Marley's, even Michael Max, with the transition from calling a greyhound to a trot race to a gallop race, it's it's not as easy as I think some people think. I personally, I find greyhound racing, I, I quite in, always enjoyed calling the greyhounds because it was just short, sharp, there was no time to think about everything, you would just call it as it unfolds. The trots could be a little bit different. When you get a race over three and four laps, it can be very repetitive and you have to find ways of trying to make the race more interesting or you're just sweating on a driver taking off from last mid-race and doing something mm. so you had something to, to commentate with. But you know, I always loved calling the, the greyhounds, the trots I adapted to and and uh, and then eventually it all led to, to working in the gallops. You get the opportunity to work in the gallops and the one thing I love about uh, being involved in, in Sky Sports Radio now or 2KY as it was known is the wonderful stories because there wasn't this TV element early in the day. Uh, it was uh, you know, a very tight and close family and some of those stories from 2KY in the radio days we probably can't tell on here but... What we can say is that uh, it was a very important part, and still is an important part of you know people love listening to the radio and hearing these these races across. But it was a different medium back then, wasn't it? 
certainly was, and um, it was a different era as well. It was very competitive between Radio 2KY and, and Sky Channel as well. It wasn't really, um, well, it was somewhat frowned upon if you tried to, to do gigs for uh, for both at the same time because you're either with 2KY or you're with Sky Channel. There was a lot of competition back in that era as well. They were you know, two completely separate, separate identities. Uh, now right. we're all under the, the same umbrella. Under the, under the same umbrella. And and some of those moments, I mean, obviously when we've seen that vision of you working on Sky as well, uh, that's when obviously pay TV moved into homes. You must have some special memories from that. Well, that's, um, I think that was 1995. Uh, a job came up. John Maris from Sky Channel rang me and said, we're starting a new show. We're going to call it The Late Mail and we want somebody just to do the tips on the dogs and the trots. Every meeting at night, we want you to pick out a couple of specials. And Rod Gallegos started at the same time. He would he would operate on the gallops during the day, and I took care of all the dogs and trots at night. And that was the, the beginning of a new era, because not long after that, the home channel started um, on, uh, on Foxtel, and then things really started to change uh, to, to what we see, what we really take for granted now. But in 1997, when that home channel started, that was the start of something pretty big. Yeah. How did the uh, the transition from radio to TV, how did you sit with that? It actually meant I was doing less calling. Uh, Sky were using me mainly as a presenter. I was initially hosting various night programs and hosting night shifts as well. And and the, the calling opportunities was, was really diminishing. And by... 1999, I was starting to, to get itchy feet, thinking I'm just getting stereotyped here as a presenter. And I was very grateful to have that role, but I wasn't really fulfilling my passion. And then this opportunity came up in Hong Kong. Oddly enough, Wayne Wilson uh, was the one that put my name forward. They contacted him for just looking for a, someone around 30 um, with, with a bit of upside. So then this opportunity came up to go to Hong Kong and uh, Jeff Want uh, was one of the key bosses at Sky Channel then, and I, I sat down with him and said, listen, this offer's come up, and he said, listen, you have to, you'd have you be mad if you don't take it. Go and give it a go for two years, and if it doesn't work out, we'll keep a spot for you here at Sky. You can always come back home. So I thought that was the safety net I was looking for. So in July 99, I got on that plane to Hong Kong and ended up spending 16 marvellous years there. Had you been to Hong Kong before? As a 13-year-old, uh, my grandfather worked for Qantas, and I remember he, my grand, grandparents took me there for a holiday and looked back at a photo of a very skinny, long-haired kid <laughs> sitting on, uh, on Hong Kong Harbour, and I think how, how surreal was that? It was the only time as a teenager I'd travelled overseas, and it just wow. happened to be Hong Kong. You mentioned 16 seasons there. That's, that's incredible. At the start, though... Uh, were there any thoughts of jumping on the plane and coming home? Because it is, it is something too. If you if you haven't been, uh, you know, uh, travelling the world and experiencing all, all these different cultures, it can be a bit of a shock. It certainly was, and I'd say it took several months before I started to feel comfortable there. Because I, I've got to honestly say, when I arrived, I didn't know anyone, um, and there was no social media. Um, barely had a laptop back then, so. It was very daunting. You felt very isolated in the in the early stages, but we were very busy with work. And because I, I arrived in time for the new season to start in August, by the time we got to December and the rush of working that first international meeting, and I remember Falvalon won the sprint then, so there was a bit of that Aussie connection at that stage. And the rush I felt from working 
as a as a presenter over there during that international meeting, I thought, wow, this is this is very exciting. Mm. Some wonderful moments. I remember, as I said, growing up as a kid, and 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 you'd tune in and you'd be able to watch these big international meetings. Um, the one that stands out for me, just going back, I, I've always looked back at that Hong Kong Mile. Um, and obviously, Good Baba was the favourite. Um, you know, was the crowd favourite, and it's just one of those things that you know. The, the, the and from then going and experiencing it, it's hard to. I mean, we just we just spoke about that crowd then and that audio with Winks. Um, sometimes that was a Happy Valley crowd, mm. <laughs> Happy Valley crowd on a on a regular Wednesday night. The the passion they have for obviously the punt uh, is extraordinary. Um. With the broadcast box there, we, we operate without a, um, a closed window, so you really get the crowd effects uh, for, for every meeting, particularly those, those big meetings. And it can help you in a way too because there's different uh, camera angles that go up on those big screens there. Like that screen in the centre of Happy Valley, that's as big as a 747. Um, yeah. You probably don't realise that until you're actually there. And sometimes you might miss something. If something stumbled out of the gate or... Um, if they've lost the rider or something, the crowd lets you know immediately something's happened. It's a great safety net. <laughs> it's a, the other thing too uh, here. I mean, uh, we'll have sort of you know Lizzie's pick of the yard, or say Muns will come on and, and give a market mover, and there's no crowd. Uh, you know, the, some of the crowds listening to it, but obviously a lot of the crowd have you know already placed their bets. But over there, I was really fascinated by the the noise the crowd would make watching the totes. And the tote screens would come up on board. And I correct me if I'm wrong, but it was like a brown colour. The number would be uh, sort of surrounded by this sort of maroni coloured square. Mm, that's right. And that that indicated a plunge. And yes. and, and if I, it, green then red, and when it went brown, it would go ooh. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and for for those listening, we're sort of talking about a horse, you know, plummeting on the tote from say I don't know nine nine fifty or nine point five to. To jump at uh, say three dollars, you know, twenty, and just the way in which they really get behind it. I mean, was that something too that added a bit of pressure for you in terms of? I know that you weren't calling for the Chinese audience, but the, the amount of money that's invested on that, those those race meetings, I mean, uh, that makes your job a little bit more critical, if not as even more critical than it is here in Sydney. Yeah, well, there's some hard markers over there in Hong Kong, but I guess. Um, our- our pool of listeners was was quite small in in comparison uh, with the with the English audience, but yeah, it was a very um, critical market, and you had to be very well researched on everything you did. And with the, just the two meetings a week, you you had that time as well to do the the full preparation, and you pretty much know what you're talking about on the day, which you had to. But th- those betting plunges were quite extraordinary because in the closing minutes. You look up at the wind pool and it's 25 million, uh, the local currency. So we're talking about you know, 4 million Australian approximately. And for something to come crashing down in that example you gave from $9 into 350, that takes an extraordinary amount of money uh, mm. to, to cause a plunge like that. And I think that's why the crowds used to react so much. And initially, if you weren't looking at the betting board right at that time and the crowd would go off, you think, what's happened? What, what, what's yeah. happened here? <laughs> What, what about yourself and, and, and having a punt? I mean, it's, it's something that uh, we all love. I mean, that's why we're in the game. We, we love what we do and we love the whole concept of, of racing and, you know, putting, your, I guess, your, your dollar where your, uh, where your thoughts are. Mm. 
Um, you do the form in, in different ways. I mean, we've had you on the punters panel before. You love betting off trials, don't you? That is that is one of my loves because I think you, you like to find find something before it becomes common knowledge and, and everybody's talking about it. And I'm not always looking for the obvious one from the trials, sometimes something that's been buried out the back and it gets to the races and it's going off at double figures and you tip it on top, you know you're taking a chance. It's very satisfying when you get those ones right. And um, sort of picking out a, a horse that I will be following it uh, throughout its career, I think this is this has got a lot of upside. I love a punt, and I know a lot of callers don't like betting on on races that they call. I'm actually the opposite. I like betting in those races because I've done all the preparation for the meeting, and I feel confident I know what I'm doing. I'd much rather do that than be um, having crazy little bets on away meetings that I've done no preparation on. Yeah. Do you find it, uh, what's going through your mind? That obviously you're a professional broadcaster. So, I mean, we, we, we would have no idea at home, although some of those close out to you might know if he's had, uh, you've had something a little small on something. But I don't know how you, uh, how you guys do it. If you're watching a race and your horse is in a particular awkward spot or it's, you know, just been luckless and, you know, you've, uh, you've had something on, it, um, geez, it'd be frustrating. <laughs> I think Hong Kong taught me quite well because it, there was many occasions up there you'd have certain really big bets riding to be winning amounts of money that would be like life-changing. And I mean that with the triple trio or the big six and you're just missing these close photo finishes and you think, oh, if I got that, I could literally buy a house with the winning. So I think you became immune to the pain of, of being beaten for good money. <laughs> if, immune if to the pain. Thing, being immune to the pain. Well, I have to. I have to bring up a story uh, on that uh, that my good friend and your good friend Grant Boyden informed me of. Now, I didn't realise this, but and correct me if I'm wrong. But Boydo reckons that he was the number one or in the top three for Pizza Hut purchases. Second, he's now telling me, second in the country for Pizza Hut purchases. Because back in the day at 2KY, every Friday night, and correct me if I'm wrong here, you, every night, sorry, you'd eat Pizza Hut. You'd order Pizza Hut. And they thought, and Rod Fuller and, and the crew, is that correct? Mm. Uh, pizza was the, uh, the the dish of choice, I have to say. Uh, I remember a lot of the Saturday nights in particular, that was a tradition because in that era, I was working with Steve Cairns a lot on Saturday nights, and Steve and I were, were great mates, and he was one of the, the greatest coordinators ever to live. So that was our little treat, and I think it would come about 9 o'clock, and we'd sort of time it for when one of those two-mile races was on at Mooney Valley Trot, so we could actually really enjoy the pizza. Outstanding. Well, what I did also let me know of a particular time there was a... I didn't realise, was there an earth tremor or something at, uh, at Canberra one night? Um... I He's telling me about a story, and I'm tying this in where I'm going with this, Darren, is on the pun and about, you know, being immune to those sick beats. Apparently, there was an occasion where you had to, there was a set of headphones that needed to be replaced by our, the, our great man, Max Carter, who now, Max, obviously comes on all the trips with me with 2KY, and there, there was a, Max was said, what happened to these headphones? And he said, look, oh. they were uh, they were affected by the earth tremor at, uh, at Canberra. But the the rumour was amongst the crew that there'd been a bad beat that night at Canberra. Uh, Grant's got a very good memory. It sounds very plausible. <laughs> what's, the, what's the best horse you've ever seen? Uh, 
away from Winks. There you go. To make it a little bit more different, maybe to to other um, other questions you've been asked about her. I'd have to say, in Hong Kong, I had a real love for Abel Friend at the top of his game. Mm. Uh, yeah, I found him very exciting. Um, those performances of Chautauqua, whilst he wasn't the best overall, he certainly produced, I think, the most memorable finishes, at least on, on, on three occasions, twice in Sydney and, and once in Hong Kong. Uh, yeah, so it's a tough question once you take Winks out of the equation. Yeah, I still remember the day, um, and I'm sure you experienced much more with, with Big Red, as he was known with Abel Friend, but that day at Chartin in the international race where he did win at a short price, but it's the first time at a racetrack I've ever experienced what the crowd... How long is that Chartin straight? Uh, is it 400? Uh, a little bit longer. I think a little bit longer. 425. But the, the crowd sort of goes pretty much nearly one and a half, two furlongs down, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, Abel Friend, he won the uh, the Group 1 race on the last day I called there, which was Derby Day. So that was the, the Queen's Silver Jubilee over 1,400 metres. And I was also doing the interviews post-race uh, for the for the press conference. So I was sort of building up Abel Friend coming to Sydney for the Doncaster. It seemed like that was a genuine possibility, or they were thinking about going to Dubai. And it was really annoying Winfried over there when I kept talking about the trip to Sydney. So the question was, Abel Friend, is it going to be Sydney or Dubai? And the owner said, neither. Neither. Oh, what a disappointment. <laughs> uh, they're, they're going to wait for Royal Ascot. And, of course, he went over there and he didn't succeed. But um, mm. I, I still remember that day and the crowd. It's the first time and only time at a racetrack I've, you know, when you sort of hear a plane coming over the top of you and you can sort of hear this faint noise and it gets louder and louder and louder. And that was the, the best way I can describe that crowd that day. You heard this roar down the track and it just was coming up along with uh, with Abel Friend that day. Um, what If you weren't a race caller, Darren, what would you be doing? Uh, maybe an in-play punter. <laughs> <laughs> Away from the punt. What about what about away uh, before the the calling races in class and on the hill there with your mate and getting the the great marks in English? Was it a was there a love of something else? Probably the the one career path that I was thinking about, as I mentioned earlier, my my grandfather worked at Qantas, and that that trip to Hong Kong as a thirteen year old and a few other trips along the way, I was really developing an interest for the for the aviation business and I actually got all the paperwork and was prepared to to do a, a pilot training course and then I started to really look at it and I thought oh you've got to be a lot smarter than me uh, to go through this I, I don't think I can make this type of commitment I'd love the the idea of sitting up in the chair and, and flying a plane but to do all the hard work to get your license was all too much Darren, you're an absolute champion, mate. Uh, you're a pleasure to work with on 2KY and Sky Sports Radio. Here I am calling it 2KY against Sky Sports Radio. It's funny, though. Even when I go travelling, everyone always refers to it as 2KY. I think it will always be known as that, mm. um, the, the racing channel. And as I said, uh, it's wonderful to hear a little bit about your story. And we could talk for hours uh, a little bit about your story behind the name. Thanks for coming on, mate. Cheers. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. No dramas at all. Darren Flindell there, our Monday's expert, uh, and that podcast will be up. Um, fascinating. That's now two in a row because Tony Brassel mentioned last week that uh, if he hadn't gotten to the racing game, it would have been aviation. Maybe that's the 
there's a link between flying a plane and being a racing broadcaster. Who would have thought? It's 11.32 on Sky Sports Radio. The Whip Around's coming up next.